Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Well, good morning. As Dave mentioned, we're going to be in Ephesians 1, uh, 20 to 23, and I've titled this sermon, uh, Jesus, Power, and the Powers, uh, which is sort of a weird title. Last week, we did a prayer for the apocalypse, which is also a weird title. So we're in this sort of weird title phase in the book of Ephesians. Um, and I thought that this sort of sounded like a 50s rock band or something, Jesus, Power, and the Powers. Or, yeah, so anyway, in the past few weeks, we've seen how Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is really a gospel presentation. And it's not just a gospel presentation. It's a presentation about Jesus and how he's changed the world. And last week, we, we started looking into Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 with this prayer. And we saw, like John said, it's a prayer for an apocalypse. And what apocalypse means is uh, seeing the light, having the veil pulled from your eyes. And John showed us how Paul had a radical experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And that vision that he saw of Jesus immediately and radically transformed his life. And so Paul's prayer here in Ephesians chapter 1 is for us to experience something like that as well, to experience Jesus in a transformative way. Now, it probably won't happen as a literal vision while we're traveling somewhere, but, you know, Paul and John are out of town at this wedding. We have to ask them if they experienced some radical vision while they were traveling. You just never know when that could happen. Well, before we tackle our questions for today, I want to talk about our four themes that we've been working through. Uh, The first one is uh, the idea of uh, Ephesians being community-oriented versus individualistic. Uh, So, for example, we've been reading every you, since it's a plural you, and in English that's hard to distinguish between the plural you and the singular you, we've been reading them as y'alls, just like Tim Mackey of the Bible Project recommends. Uh, The second Uh, theme is new creation and new order of things in Jesus. We're going to see this demonstrated today, the new order of things in Jesus um, and seeing the kingdom of God as it's manifested. And the third thing is unity in Christ and unity between heaven and earth. And the fourth one is division or battle with the powers of the world. We're going to focus mostly on two and four today. So our questions for today are, How can we understand power better? What does power mean? And then we're going to ask the question, what are the powers? When it's plural, what are the powers? And then how do we understand Jesus in relation to the powers and to power? So I know that sounds pretty complicated right now. Hopefully it'll all make sense here in a little bit. So this prayer, starting in verse 15, is one complete sentence. So we're essentially three sentences into Ephesians. It's like our sixth week in Ephesians, and we're just going to finish the third sentence today. So we are taking our time. I get that. But let's read Ephesians 1. We're going to read the whole prayer straight through here, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of y'all's faith in the Lord Jesus and y'all's love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for y'all, remembering y'all in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give y'all the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of y'all's hearts enlightened, that y'all may know what is the hope to which he has called y'all, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe." 
according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, those are the powers, and every name, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So I just want to start by reiterating a couple of points from last week uh, that John made that I thought were great and can be springboards for what we're going to do today. Uh, The first one here is that Paul prayed for them while they were excelling. And, you know, we just had a very uh, heartfelt, thoughtful prayer time. And a lot of what we prayed for were our immediate concerns. But we can also pray for people when they're excelling. That was a great point that John made last week. Another one that I think is really great is uh, knowing and hope are not opposite ideas. Like in our, I think he used the example of uh, going to the state fair and the, going up to a person who had set up the ride and saying, you know, is this ride safe? And the answer being, well, I hope it's safe versus I know it's safe, right? Those are opposite kind of concepts in a lot of our vernacular, but here they're not opposite. Uh, this hope that Paul's talking about here is guaranteed. It's a guaranteed hope. God is going to be faithful to his word. So we can be confident in our hope in Jesus. And then the last thing that he mentioned last week was that the power that God showed in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is upside down power, power of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to begin by building off this idea of power being upside down power. Let's reread uh, the first two verses we're going to get to. Actually, we're going to springboard into it by reading verse 19 again. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his, God's great might, that he, God, worked in Christ when he raised Christ, when God raised Christ from the dead and seated him, Jesus, at his, God's right hand in the heavenly places. Uh, a couple smaller things. I want to clean up a couple smaller things before we get in diving into what this power is. Uh, this phrase, when he raised him from the dead, literally in the Greek says, from among the dead ones. From among the dead ones. So that sounds a little bit more like a zombie apocalypse than John led on last week, okay? <laughs> so we're going to have to talk to him about that uh, when he comes back. The phrase worked in Christ is actually worked in the Christ. There is, a, um, there is the article there in the Greek, and it does happen throughout the New Testament. They'll call Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And the reason why I mention this is because throughout the Old Testament, there were other messiahs. There were other anointed ones. Uh, some of them were kings. Some of them were uh, priests. Some of them were prophets. Um, but Jesus is not a Christ he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Um, so I just want to point out that that's there in the Greek. Um, and then seated at his right hand. Uh, this is a reference uh, to Psalm 110.1 and to the culture of this ancient um, Near Eastern world that this book was written in the context of. And in that context, the king's right hand was the, the side of blessing, was the most uh, amazing place to be. Uh, was the most exalted uh, seat that you could have in the king's court. And that's why the two sons of Zebedee asked Jesus to sit on his right hand and on his left hand. They want to be as close to the king as possible. 
Um, so this is uh, a picture of Jesus being exalted to the right hand of the throne of his father. So God, as supreme king, invites his son to take his seat at his right hand. So it's a very exalted position. So now, on our question of what is this power that it's talking about in verses 19 and 20, well, like John talked about last week, the word power, the term power is a loaded term. Each one of us has uh, an opinion on what the word power means. And just like what John said last week, we don't want our opinion of what power is to dictate what we read when we read this here in Ephesians. We want to understand what the Bible is saying for itself, and we want to pull that meaning from the text. And so with that in mind, I want us to think about the context we've seen so far in Ephesians, a look at the context of Paul's life and Paul's other writings. And as John pointed out last week, the whole foundation for this prayer for an apocalypse is John, uh, Paul had a meeting with Jesus. He had an encounter with the risen Jesus. And before that time, Paul likely, as a, as a Jew, believed that resurrection was an end times thing. Resurrection was something that was going to happen at the very end of the age, uh, just like it talks about in several Old Testament passages, including Ezekiel. But Jesus was raised before the end times. And so when, when Paul encounters Jesus, he sees the risen Lord in a vision. All of a sudden, his mindset has to change. His whole way of thinking about uh, how this, these ages work has to change. Uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project put it this way. When he, Paul, encountered the risen Jesus, what happened was a complication in his understanding of the relationship between this age and the age to come. Because in Paul's mind, the resurrection is something that happened at the end of this age to transition us hard and fast into the new creation. But what happened in the story of Jesus that he couldn't deny because, well, he met him, was that a whole piece of the new age was standing right here in the middle of the old age. And in his class on Ephesians, Tim Mackey offers the chart, which we'll put up here. Um, so this is from the Bible Project class on Ephesians. And what it has is it has two circles, uh, one showing this age and one showing the coming age. And I'm not showing you this, but the earlier one showed these two circles as completely distinct. So in Paul's mind as a Jew, these two circles would have been completely distinct then the resurrection would have led us from one into the other. And so all the bad things that we experience now in this life would only be rectified in the future. That's only, the only hope is this is going to happen when the resurrection takes place. But what happens with Jesus is some of that future world comes in and invades the present world. So even though this doesn't happen in its fullness, we don't experience all, this thing, all these things in fullness, we can no longer be uh, in slavery to evil and sin, we can seek justice. We don't have to be dead people that are functionally dead now. We have life. We don't need to be enslaved. We have freedom. We don't need to be violent. We have shalom, peace, uh, blessing. Uh, we don't need to be cursed. We can be blessed. So all these things are now true on some level spiritually of those who are a part of Christ. And so there is this sense that the cross and the resurrection and ascension sort of inaugurated, in some sense, the coming age. These two ages sort of overlap uh, because Jesus was resurrected from the dead. It's not just an end times thing. So the question that I'm asking today about power is, 
how did God do this? How did God win this war against evil and against sin? Well, he won the war by asking his son Jesus to strap on a sword and go out and fight Rome, right? No. Uh, did he ask his son to run for Caesar and win over the Romans by like great speaking and debating and, and eventually becoming the Caesar and then taking over the rest of the world militarily? No. no. He asked his son Jesus to face whippings and beatings and crucifixion. That's how he won the war. Through the greatest act of injustice that has ever happened, God was able to bring out perfect justice. So we have to understand that everything about this kingdom is upside down. The greatest leaders, as, as Jesus teaches, don't lord it over people. They wash people's feet. They serve people in love. How do you know that you're filled by the Spirit? Yes, you can know that you're filled by the Spirit because of miracles. That is true. That's a piece of it. But the larger piece of it is by loving people, by being the people of peace, people of forgiveness. That's what it means to be truly alive spiritually is to manifest these things. And if we consider 1 Corinthians, especially chapters 1 through 4, Paul plays with this idea of power. And if you understand the Corinthian letter, the, the Christians of Corinth are split into factions. There's this one faction that he calls the arrogant faction. It's not a good name to be named the arrogant faction. But those, that faction denies that Paul's even an apostle at all. And they think that, you know, like powerful shows, displays of power are what Christianity is all about. And Paul repeatedly tells them that when he comes again, he hopes to demonstrate the power of God among them. What he doesn't mean by that and what I long thought that that meant, is that if he went, came in and started healing people left and right, that people would think that he was an apostle. But that's not really what Paul's talking about. The main thing that Paul's talking about in that context in 1 Corinthians is his humility, his joy, his patience, his peace. It's the inward parts of being a Christian it's the inward parts, the things that God changes in our hearts where Paul wants to demonstrate to the Corinthians his power, God's power. And when we, we can see this also in Romans 8, which we looked at two weeks ago, where Paul talks about adoption and the Spirit. And his main point in Romans 8 is that we've been freed from the slavery of the past. We've been freed from that, uh, that slavery. So now, in other words, we don't have to live like we're among the dead ones anymore. We're not among the dead ones anymore. We've been raised up as well. We've been resurrected as well. We can truly be alive. We can truly be free. So again, looking back at Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he, God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And as John pointed out last week, that's why it's so important that we get this clarification about what kind of power this is in verse 20. So again, this isn't primarily talking about necessarily the big miracles or deliverance, although those are aspects of God's power. The primary thing that Paul points out is that this power is the same power that rose Jesus from the, from the dead. This is talking about bringing life out of death. And when Paul talks about life out of death, like he does in Romans 8, he's talking about 
living spiritually, being truly alive spiritually, demonstrating that spiritual life by being people who obey God, just like Jesus did, uh, living love, just like Jesus did. We're going to get to that in Ephesians 5 as well. So being a citizen of the kingdom of God, being a truly alive person, means the whole life is transformed. Your whole life changes. That's the power that it's talking about. You are truly alive while many of those around us are not truly alive. They look like they're alive. They're breathing air. They're moving around, but they're not really alive. They're dead. And so it's our responsibility to show God's power through love, through self-sacrifice, bringing peace, working for justice. So this isn't political power. This isn't a show of force. This isn't a huge stack of money like you need in modern American politics to make change effective in our society. It's not a huge stack of money. This is the power of the cross being exemplified by the people associated and identified with the one who died on the cross. It's about the power of the cross being exemplified. Uh, Lynn Kohick in her commentary on Ephesians says this, The manner in which God through Christ defeated the spiritual powers deserves attention. God's victory was through the cross, a subversive way to address power structures. Typically, we think victory is about dominating our opponents, exploiting weakness. The way of the cross, however, is the way of self-denial, losing so as to win. Mark 8.35, believers are to imitate this behavior and walk this path as they follow after God. So this is the power that's talking about here. This is self-denying power. This isn't self-gratifying or seeking after the power of the world. So that's a little bit about Jesus' relationship to power. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a little bit too, a little bit more. Let's read Ephesians 1.21 through 23 now. So where is Jesus exalted to? Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And again, before we get to the powers question, I want to talk about a couple quick notes. Every name that is named here is a reference to a, a, a cult uh, magical practice. Uh, the ancients believed that if they knew someone's name, that that gave them power over that person. Or if they knew an, like a god's name, that that allowed them to seek after that god and receive things from that god and placate that god and stuff like that. So again, knowing a name meant you could exert influence or power over someone. And so Jesus has been exalted above every name that can be named. In this age, but also the one to come, uh, Jesus is Lord over everything in space, as it describes, you know, the rule, authority, power, and dominion, every name that is named, not in this age alone, but also in the age to come. So we picture Jesus as exalted over everything in space and everything in time. So it's, it's a complete exaltation. And then finally, I just want to briefly mention this term head, which is controversial, uh, it's a complicated term. It's hard to define precisely, but um, a lot of the consensus revolves around life-giving attributes, 
leadership and visibility. Those are the main things that Paul, and again, this is a, a heavy scholarly debate that we don't have time for this morning. Um, it, we can talk about it after church if we want to. Uh, but life-giving, leadership, visibility, those are the main things we get with him being the head. So I want to focus in now on verse 21, this rule and authority and power and dominion. Like I said, those are the powers. As they're listed here, there's one other word that gets used in other sections, uh, the word thrones. Um, And so these are all references to what Tim Mackey calls the powers. And so I've quoted uh, Tim Mackey's class here on the slide. Uh, Here are several uh, definitions that he gives of these different powers. So archon or arche, ruler or rule, is a specific person who is in a role of authorized authority, power, and widespread influence, mostly kings and officials of a monarchy or priests and officials of a temple. So, for example, in in this time period, uh, that would have been like the Caesar. It would have been like the governor uh, Pilate. It would have been like the high priest and the high priestly family in Judaism. Uh, Then you have exousia. Exousia is authority, a structure or social arrangement that is upheld and represented by an authorized person or group. So you could think about like tax laws and the IRS as an example of authority or exousia. Uh, Then the next one is dunamis or power, the real or potential influence manifest in military, political, or economic institutions or officials who represent them. So you could think about like a general and the army behind that general, for example. That's a dunamis. A thronos, or throne, the symbol of institutional or structural authority or power associated with an institution. It metaphorically refers to a structure of power, not a particular person. So in our modern culture, this would be like the White House. You could say, the White House said yesterday that blah, 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 blah. Well, they don't mean that the House actually said something. This is the throne being represented to the public. And then finally, curiates, dominion or lordship, the sphere or territory of a ruler's power or influence. So the dominion, for example, would have been like the Roman Empire or the United States of America or something like that. It's the dominion. So in light of Tim Mackey's class on Ephesians, and I just gave away some of these examples, but I want to give a partial list of powers that we deal with. And some of the powers are good, some of the powers are evil, and some of the powers are either neutral or mostly neutral. Okay, so... Uh, but, but I want to point out that this idea of powers, we tend to think of it, at least uh, those of us from charismatic backgrounds, tend to think of the powers as just demons. That's, that's when Paul talks about these authorities and rules and principalities, he's talking about demons. Well, it's a small subset of what he's talking about. He's talking about a lot of other things too. And again, I don't have time to go into how Tim Mackey got all this stuff, but you can go watch the class on, on Ephesians yourself. Or we can talk about after church, like I said. But here are some different ideas about the powers that we deal with on a daily basis, some of them. Uh, Minor laws, such as traffic signs, speed limits, or social rules, like opening the door for people. Uh, Some of us, when we see speed limit signs, uh, that affects our behavior. Some of us, it doesn't affect our behavior. I see Jerry back in the back room shaking his head, no. he does. And the last time I mentioned the speed limits as, a, as, uh, as something that would change our behavior, he said he did the same thing. So he's incredibly consistent about that. So that should influence our behavior on some level. Uh, then you have major laws, such as laws against murder. That's a good law. It's a good law to have laws against murder. And then there's laws that favor specific groups of people, like specific tax laws. Those are bad. They favor the wealthy people. That's not good. Um, you also have rolled up in this religious laws. And one of the points that Tim Mackey makes in his class is that 
the law of commandments contained in ordinances, Ephesians 2.15, that that's part of what the religious laws, it's, it's a power that Paul lists uh, in Ephesians 2. Uh, another thing that can be a power, uh, feelings or constructs that lead to disunity, including racism, sexism, patriarchalism, individualism, nationalism, anything that can lead us away from unity in Christ, these constructs, these social constructs or feelings, those are powers. They affect our relationship with each other. They affect our relationship with God. What about economic rules, especially the ones that make the rich richer and the poor poorer? The way our economy works, it's not just, it's not equitable. Those are powers, and we deal with them. Uh, one that was specifically important to the Ephesians is the host of heaven. Uh, we've talked about how Artemis, or Diana, the local god of the Ephesian people, was called the queen of heaven. So the sun, the moon, the stars, these were things that were worshipped in Ephesus. But we find out in Genesis chapter 1 that God gives the sun dominion over the day and the moon dominion over the night and the stars to give light to the earth. So there is a godly use for these powers. They order when we can farm and when we go to sleep. They order how we live our lives, but that even can be taken too far when it goes into worship. Uh, what about religious leaders? We talked about the high priestly family at the time of Jesus. Uh, in Corinthians, it said, had the princes of this world known it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. That's likely talking about the high priests. If they really knew the truth about Jesus, they wouldn't have crucified him. So the powers get described in Paul's writings as the religious leaders. Uh, we can think about this as political leaders at all levels, from clerks and sheriffs locally, generals, governors, presidents, Caesars. All those are powers. And then finally, on this last slide here, we have the ones we usually think about when we think about principalities and powers. The good ones, angels, and the bad ones, demons. All of these things are considered powers, according to Paul. If you, if you cross-check all the different places he talks about these things, uh, you'll get, you can make this comprehensive list. So in light of what these powers are, when we see these words... Rule and authority and power and dominion. Let's reread verses 21 through 23. And remember that this is Jesus. He's seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. End of verse 20. He's being exalted far above all rule, all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, the present age, but also in the one to come, the future age, the kingdom age. And he, God, put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus is above all the powers now and forever. He's above all the powers. But I want to point out one thing that's implicit here in Ephesians and it's explicit elsewhere. Who's the one that did this exaltation? God did this exaltation. So implicit to that, there is our, another hierarchy in place. And we're going to turn briefly. You can keep your finger here if you want to. We're going to turn briefly to 1 Corinthians 15. Because when, 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, he quotes the same verse from the Old Testament. And then he clarifies something for us here. Verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him 
who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So the picture we have here is God, who is the king of the universe, invites his son up to his right hand of the throne of power. He's subjecting everything under Jesus' feet. But it should be obvious that if God's the one doing this exaltation, that Jesus is still subordinate to the Father. Now, I put together a little chart that I think sort of illustrates the powers. And and this is just three examples of three different parts of our lives and how this affects us. I have social structures, I have economic structures, and I have political structures. We could have done military structures. We could have done, you know, there's all sorts of different things we could do here, all different aspects of life we could talk about here. But here's the picture that Ephesians 1 gives us. Social structures, we have like social norms, we have laws, we have the hosts of heaven, sun, moon, and stars. They dictate like when, we do, when we're awake, when we're asleep, how we do things. It's, these are all social structures that we deal with. Economic structures, we've got social norms, we've got economic rules, we've got spiritual influence behind why those economic rules are the way that they are. We've got political structures, we've got local ones like clerks and police, we've got things like Caesar and the president. We've got the spiritual influences behind Caesar, the spiritual influences behind our Senate, behind our president, behind all these things, good and bad. Depending on your political views, it might be good now, it might be bad now, it might be a mix, I don't know. But you have spiritual, no matter if the spiritual influence, you want to interpret that as good or bad or mixed, whatever the case is, the point that we're trying to make here is that Jesus is above all of it. The painting that Paul is painting here, the picture that he's painting here, is not just that Jesus is bigger than Caesar. He is saying that. But he's also saying that he's bigger than the demons that are propping Caesar up. He's exalted above everything. There's nothing that Jesus doesn't have authority over. Now, practically speaking, is everyone obedient to him in all of these ways of life right now? No. That's the not yet part of the kingdom. But there is a time coming when this will be a perfect little map of how life will be. And everything will be subjected to Jesus, socially, economically, politically, everything, every aspect of it. So what does this mean for our lives? Let's think again through our four layers of interpretation. We've talked about uh, what the text meant to them a little bit. Now, in the original context of Ephesians, the original audience would have been happy to hear about the superiority of Jesus the Messiah to Uh, and his father, to Artemis, uh, the other gods. They would have seen that this is him being exalted above Caesar and above the powers behind Caesar. And they uh, would have hearkened to this as, um, you know, he's been raised from among the dead ones. Now we are raised from among the dead ones. And we can really live our lives in a way that demonstrates uh, that spiritual life, that, that we are living people, people of the age to come. So that's a little bit of how they would have understood it. Now, what does this text mean to us? We've got to do the hard work now. We, we've done the hard work of seeing what it meant to them. We can't just read this and just apply it straight to our lives. We have to think about this a little bit. So we, too, want to be obedient people who follow Jesus. Uh, we can also be amazed that Jesus is above all the powers of our day, all the authorities in our time. And the way that we exemplify that power is not by taking up the sword and fighting people, right? 
It's by turning the other cheek. It's by seeking justice. It's by being people of peace, by serving our community in love. I wanted to read this quote from uh, Arnold in the ZIBBC. Usually the ZIBBC is a biblical backgrounds commentary, and it's not uh, super practical, but I thought he had a pretty practical spot here. He says, under the old covenant, God manifested his presence in the temple. The Shekinah, the essence, the glory, power, and presence of God filled the temple. Biblical writers could therefore exclaim, Behold, the house of the Lord is full of his glory. Under the new covenant, God now fills believers directly with his presence through the promised Holy Spirit. And he's talking about verse 23 here where it says, uh, He fills the fullness of him who fills all in all. This verse also indicates that believers have a mission. God is setting out to fill all of creation with the good news of redemption available in the Messiah Jesus. In every way is perhaps better translated totally or in all parts. God manifests his presence in believers so they can move out to reach every corner of the world with the gospel of Christ and then to help each of these new believers grow and mature in every way before God. So when it says the fullness of him who fills all in all, the picture is you've got God, his glory, filling the temple in the Old Testament period and how that would have helped that group of people in that time. And now as we're going to find out later in Ephesians, we are the temple. God's presence fills us and we go out into the world to fill it with God's love, with his mercy, with his justice. So I want to reflect a little bit here at the end about uh, Jesus' relationship to power and our relationship to power. I've seen some posts online recently where some Christians think that this view of power seems weak. I've seen people say stuff like, turn the other cheek, why would we want to do that? And so I want us to think about this as we close this week. How would we, if we could go back in a time machine, how would we have won this war with Rome? Well, the only way I would have known to do it is to strap on a sword and go out and try to recruit as many people in the army as possible and try to you know, take over Israel, take Israel back for God. And maybe with God's help, we could have all you know, gotten together and with our swords, we could have liberated Israel as a country physically. We could have done that physically, right? Would that have helped anyone outside of Israel? And I'm assuming here we're not going to be able to take over the whole Roman Empire. Like that's just a crazy thought. So we're not helping anyone outside of Israel. We're probably getting a lot of people killed in the process. We're only doing a physical liberation. That's the best that human wisdom has to offer. Let's think about God's wisdom here, God's solution. He asked Jesus to die on the cross. He uses the powers, the authorities, a desire for power against them. And through death, Jesus wins the war. What? Like, what? This is crazy. But because God did it that way, the liberation isn't just limited to Israel and it isn't limited to physical liberation. Because of what Jesus did, now we can reach people under any government, under any power, under any addiction, under any spell, any spiritual darkness. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your childhood was like. It doesn't matter your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter what your language is. Jesus died for you. He was raised for you. And now he lives as an invitation for you to live freely, just as he did, now and in all of eternity. That's what it means 
to exercise spiritual power. So we do, we still fight the powers today. We fight them by following the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, looking forward to the kingdom when they'll be done away with, the evil ones will be. We've been given the power of God to serve others in love, not to exert influence over people. And in it and through it all, we recognize that we serve a risen Savior, Jesus, our King, who has been exalted above all the powers, whether they want to accept his leadership now or not. And even if they don't, even if they refuse to recognize Jesus' authority today, we submit ourselves to his authority and we follow him wholeheartedly as he leads us to his Father and our Father. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning that we can see the greatness that you have um, exalted Jesus to, that he is the name above every name, that he, his power and the authority that you've given him is above everything else, Father. We're so thankful that you've done that. And what a complete victory was won in an upside-down way, God. It's just marveled. We marvel at your wisdom that he could die for us, that he could um, suffer and and die the way that he did, and that you would vindicate him by raising him from the dead and ascending him and bringing him to your right hand, Father. Just a beautiful, beautiful thing that you've done through Jesus. And today, we see that. We see what you've done uh, through Jesus and what you both are doing for us in this day and time, how you act and how you work within us through the Spirit, how we can be people of the cross, people that demonstrate your power, your love, through humility, through justice, through all the beautiful things that you've laid out for us, Father. So we're so thankful for the opportunity to join in the work that you're doing in the world today and that we can submit ourselves to your King, your Messiah, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.